It's a great pleasure for me to see so many here, including some old students, not so old, but former students, and some slightly older, but very good friends from Nuffield days. Uh, wonderful to have them here. And to those of you for whom this is the first visit, a very warm welcome. I hope that when you leave, you'll recognize this place to be a, one of exciting and stimulating encounter about things American. It's an intensely busy place. We hold six international conferences a year, more than 150 events every year. And it's altogether a very stimulating, high-quality group of colleagues whom it's my privilege to work alongside. And I hope that you'll feel warmly welcome to return, <coughs> having added your names to our email list. Now, jet lag being what it is, and my having been in New York until, I think, only about 12 hours ago, um, I've made a mistake, which I'm not going to tell you about, but it's one which I should exploit. The mistake is that I mistranscribed the lecture title. <laughs> and I put it down, as you can see, as American Elections 2012. The alumni office doesn't have that title. The alumni office has American Election 2012. And the bad news is that there isn't an American election in 2012 or in any other year. And I'm going to use that as a point of departure. Now, the second slight mistake I've made, doubtless as a result of composing this in an economy class seat with a rather ill child on my left and a slightly <laughs> laterally challenged person on my right. <laughs> Row 57, seat C in Virgin Atlantic is not recommended <laughs> as a place in which to think great thoughts about American elections. Especially not under those circumstances. But the second mistake I made was that I thought I had an hour and a half. And it turns out I have only an hour. So because my very good friend and colleague, Dr. Hugh David, is leading a tour at 5.15 today of the uh, building, I don't want to overrun. And since the clock at the back of the room tells me it's already 7.45, um, I really will have to replace the battery. Either something's gone horribly wrong or I'm going to have to be rather quick. So with those thoughts, then, let me give you the short version of the lecture for those of you either who have decided that now is the appropriate time to leave or in case I don't, or in case I should forget in my jet lag condition by the end of the lecture what it was that I meant to have said. This November, here's the claim, this November will not deliver a clear result. I'm not forecasting a repeat of 2000, uh, with the election effectively being decided by a majority of the members of the Supreme Court, but I think it will not deliver a clear result for reasons I will come on to, partly because we do not have an election, but elections. Point one. Point two is a health warning, and then I will begin. The health warning is this. I have had to give careful thought to, as one does, to the level at which one is lecturing. And... The advice I have had from some people who are in this room and who shall remain anonymous is that I should pitch it at a level which would be readily understood by readers of, let us say, the Times in London, but regarded as slightly disappointing 
by avid readers of the New York Times and the New Yorker. So I shall pitch it at that level, but I'm perfectly happy to try to raise the tone a little at the end if we have any time for questions. And for those of you who are not going on the tour of the building, there might well be opportunities to do just that. So um, those are my assumptions. That's my theme. That's who I am. I'm the director of this institute. And it's lovely to be here. Now, um, let's begin with a question, because no good audience ever gets away without contributing to an occasion such as this. How many governments are there in the United States? Now, I know that there are at least 15 people in this room who know precisely, according to Bureau of the Census data, updated on Monday of this week, what the answer to that question is, but I'm not, repeat not, directing myself to them. What is the number? 61, 53. 61, 53. Totally good. Many thousands. 52. The median number so far is 52. 52 is the median number. So the wisdom of this crowd is that there are 52 governments. Let's count them. We have one federal government. Okay. We have 50 state governments, so we're already 51. We have the government of the District of Columbia, which is 52. We have county governments, which is just over 3,000. <laughs> we have municipal governments of various designations, nearly 20,000. Let me be quite clear, these are governments, these are public authorities to which regular election is made under law. Okay, there's a serious point here about American, the structure of American politics. Townships and towns are further 16,500. School districts, which are the single largest category of local government in the United States, 13,500. Special purpose districts, which extends, as of this morning at least, to the Oregon Apple Tree Commission, <laughs> 35,052 which takes us a little beyond 52. It takes us to 89,005. <laughs> What's my point? The point is really quite straightforwardly that America is a thickly governed country. And there's a certain tension between what Americans sometimes so often tell themselves about their antipathy to government and the fact of there being a huge number of governments to which a regular election is had in the United States. Okay, arcane fact or significant fact? The significance of the fact is that these are elected institutions. And it's a serious point. It's often said, famously observed by one distinguished Speaker of the United States House of Representatives, which every student of American politics in this university knows that all politics in America is local. Well, actually, most government is local, too. Most government is local. That's where much of the action is, and that's where much of the salience is. <coughs> families with children, for families with children, the conduct of independent school boards is of critical importance and significance. And I don't want that to be lost. But I know you did not come here this afternoon to hear about elections to local school boards, so I've decided that on balance, I shan't risk what's left of my reputation in this university by talking about them. But I am going to just set that number 
in a further context and thread it back to my opening theme, which is that there's not going to be a clear result here. And here's why I think this, here's some further thoughts. Here are some further thoughts on why I think that outcome is likely to be muddy. Now, these following points are known by every, at least by the end of the first year, by every undergraduate studying American politics, and they're thought about and thought through and their implications considered. But one could spend one's life listening to BBC and Channel 4 correspondents on American politics, and with a few distinguished exceptions, not appreciate the following points. Indeed, they are too often lost sight of in much American coverage. This is a system characterized by features of vertical separation, federal, state, and local governments, as we've seen. That is a serious structural characteristic, and it's one with enormous consequences, which I'm not going to enter into today. But it is characterized also by horizontal separation between the executive, the Congress, and the judiciary, and by a Congress which is bicameral, and not, as more than one BBC correspondent has told us in the last year, not an upper and a lower house, but by two houses of equal status. Not, not equivalent authority, but certainly equal status. And crucially, with respect to that horizontal separation, there is an exclusionary rule. And for those of you who haven't read very much about American politics, if you were to forget everything else about this afternoon, just to reflect upon the significance of there being an exclusionary rule would prompt some interesting thoughts, by which I mean that if one is a member of one branch, one may not be simultaneously a member of another. That fundamentally alters the political relationship between the executive and Congress. It is a profoundly significant structural characteristic If you're a Congre member of Congress, you may not be president. You may not simultaneously hold a point of office in the executive branch. You may not be a civil servant. You may not be a serving military officer in receipt of a salary. And if you're a member of the United States Senate, you may not simultaneously be a member of the United States House or a member of the federal judiciary at any level. That's a profoundly consequential fact. And they use those constitutional rules have consequences which people spend their lives tracing in public policy. But these four are worthy of our consideration this afternoon in light of my proposition that there is to be likely to be no clear result from this election. We are going to know who wins the presidency. We're going to know who wins, but the aggregated result will not be clear. So we have a result of the following kind. We have a fractured party system. It's structurally fractured. There is not, to quote my now doubtless rather nervous BBC journalist, I do hope he's not here in the audience, there is no such thing as the Republican Party or the Democratic Party in the United States as, an, as a single organizational form. It does not exist. <coughs> There is not even a Republican organization in the United States Congress. There is one in the House and there's one in the Senate, but there is not a Republican Party organization in Congress. And at present, or at least until 
arguably until his confirmation as the Republican Party's nominee, the Republican Party had no leader in the sense in which most European political parties necessarily have leaders by virtue of their rules. The second consequence is that we have a Congress which matters enormously in American politics and to American public policy, whose members' decisions map pretty closely their median voters' preferences. So voters who denounce <coughs> outcomes of congressional deliberations might wish to reflect on why it is that Congress is so good at summing the preferences of their voters and so bad at aggregating them. In other words, Congress has, and I think this is a structural weakness, Congress has, over the, especially over the course of the last 40 years, become a progressively less competent aggregating mechanism. It's quite good at adding up preferences, rather like little children who send, the, send into the shop and decide they'd like everything, cost unconstrained, that's remarkably similar to the way in which members of Congress vote and they vote behave, and they behave in that way because that accords with their median voters' preferences. There are any number of academic debates around these questions. I'm simplifying dramatically, but I hope to convey a central truth. The third is that we have a United States Congress which is abundantly rich in authority. If one wishes to look for the sources of legal authority in the United States federal government, one looks to the United States Congress, <coughs> not to the presidency. The presidency has remarkably little formal authority. Congress's weakness is that, partly because of the bullet point two, it has little incentive to engage in collective action, to aggregate interests, and little capacity for it. That is not a sign of a healthily functioning order. And the presidency, by contrast, is very weak in authority. So much for a sketch of uh, constitutional law. I just now want to take snapshots of what's happened the, at the presidential level, because this is the bit you really want to hear about. You want to hear about that one election out of those 6,000 that are actually occurring. And I'm just going to run through them. I'm going to suggest to you that we might think about this in four ways. Now, I'm not too sure about the third, because the, th the third point was one which I was about to make before the child on my left last night was, had a particularly difficult phase in its semi-sleep. Um, <laughs> but I think they more or less stand up. The New Deal Electoral Coalition under Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman, a process of gradual detachment of the South from the Democratic Party from 1948 to 1968, and indeed that was a process that con has continued until recent years. The process is now effectively complete. To think in terms of the spatial distribution of the presidential vote by urban, suburban, and rural divides, by the two coasts and the interior, and by the regions, especially the south and the northeast but also to an extent the Midwest, from 76 to 88. And then to say something about the politics of affect, namely culture, symbols, traditions, religion, 
social mores and their applications to public policy over the course of the last 20 years. So, let me now go back, if I can, and take you through those steps. Let's look at what the electoral map looked like at the height of the New Deal. This is the presidential election result in 1936. Now, the reason that Alaska, which doesn't actually sit just off the Californian coast, but is up here, um, the reason that Alaska and Hawaii are not there is because we're dealing with the 48 states in 1936. This is the outcome. I mean, it's less of an outcome than a procession, really. And you'll notice that only two states, Vermont and Maine, both of them rock-ribbed Yankee Republican states, both powerfully pro-union in the Civil War, only two, both very Protestant, only those two states, just those two states, supported Alf Landon in 36. And you'll notice the really sharp-eyed ones will notice that DC's not there because at that time residents of the District of Columbia had no vote in presidential elections. So that's what 36 looks like. It is absolutely overwhelming. And it has another characteristic, which is hidden here, the other characteristic that is hidden is that this is a clear result, not just because it's overwhelming at the presidential level, it's a clear result because the congressional majorities that accompanied it were overwhelming. The number of Republicans returned in the 1936 election to the House, remember there are 435 members of the House, was 89. Just 89. There was a point in my early in my undergraduate career where I looked at that map and thought, well, perhaps in some sense that's a normal condition of American politics. Perhaps the New Deal coalition, when it's so expressed in that pure way, is a normal condition. It's not. It's wholly abnormal in American history. It's wholly abnormal. We have seen other landslides, but a condition where one has a landslide at the presidential level and at the congressional level is wholly extraordinary. And to those who might think that, well, under these conditions, with overwhelming democratic majorities and with a supreme master in the presidency in the form of Franklin Roosevelt, it must surely be possible effectively for a president to set the agenda, frame the agenda, and to be assured of congressional majorities for his preferences. You might reasonably think that, but it's not the case. In fact, the Congress, which was elected in 36 and took office on January the 2nd, 1937, proved remarkably resistant to Roosevelt's interests. So party does not explain everything. So that's 36. What if we look at 1948? is a really interesting year, and it's an interesting year because it contains the seeds of that southern detachment from the New Deal coalition. You'll have noticed that the South was solidly and completely part of the Democratic coalition under Franklin Roosevelt, solidly and overwhelmingly. There were few Republican organizations in any southern state, and those that existed, certainly outside Texas and Florida, were almost everywhere 
with exceptions which only truly obsessive watchers of elections such as me are interested in. The South was wholly democratic. It was a one-party region. And you'll see in 1948 that it's suddenly ceased to become that because Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and South Carolina vote, in fact, for Strom Thurmond, who was the segregationist, racist, third-party candidate. And what that indicates is, in the light of history, what that indicates, and it was pretty apparent at the time, is that where the National Democratic Party embraced or was thought likely to embrace a program which even entertained the possibility that uh, the president-elect on Democratic ticket would support civil rights, that southern states would defect. And that signal has been followed very closely ever since. Elsewhere, as you can see, Harry Truman in blue has a coalition which spatially is distributed across the country. And he does, in fact, still pick up southern support. Arkansas, Tennessee, North Carolina, the border states, Virginia, even Florida and Texas, and California, and defeats Dewey. Only just, but nevertheless, comfortably enough, Barack Obama would take that result. He would absolutely take that result. Let's look at the further change in 1960. Because this too, like 48, is a very close election. Not at all like 36. And look again what's happening to the South. Richard Nixon is picking up Florida, Virginia, Tennessee, and Oklahoma. And Texas is desperately close. Texas nearly goes to Nixon, and had it done so, then he would have, Richard Nixon would have become President of the United States. And Alabama actually partly defects. It's a complicated defection, but it too shows its willingness to secede from the Democratic coalition by embracing a candidate who, though less virulent a racist than Strom Thurmond, is nevertheless a pro-segregationist. Otherwise, Kennedy picks up part of the Northeast, including New York and Pennsylvania, the very poor state of West Virginia, and much of the uh, Midwestern heartland, Michigan, Minnesota, Illinois, but not all of it. Wisconsin, Indiana, and Ohio go for Nixon. So the Midwest is very competitive. Strikingly, these largely unpopulated states, which have very few electoral votes, very few electoral votes. These are overwhelmingly rural states. Are strongly Republican. And so crucially is California, which is Richard Nixon's home state. So much has changed in the intervening 52 years. So let's look at 64. 64 is not remotely close. <coughs> 64 is overwhelming. There is a clear result in 64. Lyndon Johnson destroys his opponent, Barry Goldwater. Now, Goldwater cannot, I think, rightly or reasonably be characterized as a racist, but he's certainly very conservative. He's a small business person from Arizona, a state which he just manages to win. And strikingly, he wins 
the sovereign states because he commits himself to states' rights in ways which persuade southerners that their interests lie safely with a conservative Republican. So the Deep South really has now, at presidential elections, shown that where, an income, where a Democrat embraces civil rights, as Lyndon Johnson had done, those states' voters will defect. And in 1964, almost no blacks were voting in those states. Indeed, there was no federally guaranteed right to blacks to vote in 1964. None. So almost all the voters here are white. So it's overwhelming. And he gets, Lyndon Johnson wins enormous majorities, or Democrats win enormous majorities, in the House and the Senate. Republicans are crushed. Part of the reason for, that, for the presidential landslide, which it was, and just look how big it is, 42 million against 27. Part of the reason for that landslide is that the Republicans at that convention in 64 choose a candidate, Barry Goldwater, whom Lyndon Johnson, had the choice been his to nominate his opponent, would certainly have chosen. <laughs> if the Republicans had actually formally adopted the rule, we will choose the presidential candidate against whom our opponent would most like to run, Lyndon Johnson would have chosen Barry Goldwater. Lyndon John the tapes of Lyndon Johnson's conversations with staff in July and August of 1964 show that this is a president who, as a consummate wielder of power, can barely contain his excitement at the prospect of running against Barry Goldwater <laughs> because he knows precisely what is going to happen. And it does. 42 million to 27. That is 64. And that's the last Democratic landslide, really, because everything changes in 64 and 65, because in 64 we have the Civil Rights Act, in 65 we have the Voting Rights Act, which guarantees the right to African Americans to vote. And in 68 we have, the civil, we have a further Civil Rights Act. And since the passage of the Civil Rights Act, neither Louisiana, nor Mississippi, nor Alabama, nor Georgia, nor South, South Carolina, or more correctly, since then, there has never been an occasion when a majority of white voters in those states has ever supported a Democratic candidate. That's true even in 76, when Jimmy Carter runs. Jimmy Carter failed to win a majority of white voters in his own state. So they've always defected. So the Southern defection is, by this stage, pretty substantial at the presidential level. Now, in 1980, an election year which Tony Teasdale and I, I remember, paid great attention to, uh, scarcely seems believable it was 32 years ago. Here we have an incumbent president, Jimmy Carter, defending the presidency from Georgia. He just manages to win because he gets 90% of the black votes in Georgia. And he wins West Virginia, which is an old New Deal coalition seat. And he wins Maryland. He wins DC, which is 80% African-American. He wins tiny Rhode Island. And he wins Minnesota because of his vice, largely because of his vice presidential candidate, Jimmy, uh, Walter Mondale, coming from that state. Otherwise, otherwise, with the insignificant exception of Hawaii, that's it. It is a landslide for Ronald Reagan. The landslide is not complete in Congress. And here's an interesting point. This is a much more muddied outcome than it's portrayed as being in popular myth. 
I heard friends in New York this week telling me about Reagan's huge landslide. Well, it's not actually a huge landslide. Um, it looks like a large popular vote victory. But in fact, it's a three-way race, not a two-way race. And Reagan's winning proportion of the popular vote is actually quite small for a winning candidate. It's also the case that the Democrats retained their majority in the House of Representatives. Now it is, for those of you who might be thinking, well, how on earth did Ronald Reagan become such a legislatively creative and devastating president in the face of such difficulties? The answer is what well, he was extraordinarily successful in getting a tax bill and in cutting domestic spending in 1981, but thereafter, in fact, his legislative record is really quite poor, or more accurately, just about what you'd expect it to be in light of historical experience. No more than a president can reasonably expect, given his weakness of authority. In fact, in his second, third, and fourth year, Reagan was a less successful legislative president than Jimmy Carter, although I've yet to meet very many very, very many people who immediately find that credible, but it is the case. But undoubtedly in 1981, for 1981, this was a very consequential election. And in 84, Reagan's victory was even more complete. So something's really changed here. And one of the things that changed is the Midwest, the rural Midwest, and the South are very heavily Republican by 1980 at the presidential level very heavily Republican. The other thing that's happening, though it's not apparent here, is that the Northeast is becoming much less Republican. Traditionally Republican states such as Pennsylvania and the New England states, and to an extent New York, um, have become much more Democratic. Doesn't show up in 1980 because of, Reag because of Reagan's landslide. What of 1992? This is a remarkable year because it shows what a candidate of creative brilliance could do to the Democratic coalition, just to stretch it a little. Now, what Bill Clinton succeeds in doing, apart from winning very easily by the margin you see there, 45 million to 39. What Bill Clinton succeeds in doing is to win almost all the states where the Democrats have any chance of being competitive. It's difficult to see how any Democrat in 1992 could have improved upon that performance. There is no way in which these Midwestern states and Texas and most of the Deep South can be won. But Clinton remarkably, through organization, astonishingly, actually, wins not only Arkansas, his home state, but Louisiana and Georgia. And that's largely a question of his mobilizing ethnic minorities. So that point about organization suggests, to me at least, as I think the election of 2008 shows, that organization matters and candidates' choices are consequential. I personally do not hold the view that candidates are irrelevant that elections are all about structure or all about the economy. Candidates' choices, candidates' organizational capacities both matter. And what you see there 
is a map of how to extract the maximum return from political calculations. And I think it was an astonishing, as a technical political performance by Clinton, it's remarkable. And so we come to 2008. And we have here a performance which is almost as remarkable in its own way. I mean, as Obama himself once said, if one were seeking a career in American national politics seven years after 9-11, one would probably not choose to have Hussein as a middle name. <laughs> and you know before you start that you are going to lose all of the Deep South. You are certainly going to lose Texas, which has become immensely strong Republican state. And so has Oklahoma. Oklahoma, in fact, very interestingly, <coughs> Oklahoma is the, only, is the only state in the Union where a majority of counties, of its counties, actually show an increase in the Republican vote between 2004 and 2008. And that story is partly, I have to say, about race. There is a great deal of racial resentment in that vote. And there's also racial resentment in that vote of West Virginia. West Virginia has astonishingly become now a safely Republican state, having once been firmly part of the New Deal coalition. It is desperately poor, very low uh, median incomes, very low educational attainment levels. Most people, apologies to any West Virginians here, it is indeed the case that too many of its most talented young people leave has great difficulty in attracting inward movement of capital. It's been enormously dependent upon federal government subvention, but it is culturally deeply conservative. So Obama really does extract through formidable micro-organizational capacity every last vote from that, from that map. Could I take questions at the end? Will that be all right? Right. Yep. Yep. Immigration. The United States is the United States, like Canada and Australia, uh, is and indeed the United Kingdom, has um, seen successive successive waves of, of of immigration, and that is a point of significance for the Republican Party today because one of the largest demographic groups in that immigration mix is Hispanics. And whatever happens in November, and I have no idea, you, some of you who are here for Tim Stanley's lecture might well have heard um, Tim's view about what's going to happen in November. I do not know what's going to happen in November. Um, they, these are marginal questions, and my prediction is a, is a mug's game but, uh, at that, in that respect. But I think we can be sure of this, that... Governor Romney is going to have great difficulty in winning a sufficiently large proportion of the Hispanic vote to be confident. He's much less attractive to Hispanic voters than George W. Bush was. George W. Bush had a remarkable capacity to attract Hispanic votes. I think Governor Romney doesn't. So, and a lot, I'm submitting to you that in addition to there being a major economic crisis in the United States in 2007-8, Part of what is going on here, certainly in Virginia, North Carolina, and Florida, to take just those three, part of what's going on is a formidable micromanagement in terms of organization. 
friends of mine who uh, worked for both, uh, who, who, some of whom worked for Obama, some of whom worked for McCain, compared and contrasted the organizational efforts of their respective parties in those three states by saying that, in the following way, that um, in Virginia, precinct workers were given clear instructions about whom to approach, how to approach them, what was known about the family income, what was known about educational levels, what their past voting practices were, what their political donations were, what their memberships of other societies were, what the most effective ways of getting to them might be, and then told me, remarkably, that for the first time in their experience, they had gone to people's doors and the information was, in more than 98% of the cases, completely accurate. As an organizational effort, 2008, the Obama campaign in 2008 was formidable. And my evidence on this is neither here nor there. That's what my Republican friends say, too. That's what they thought. Now, 2012 is going to be different. I do not pretend to know what the result's going to be. But I do know the following that we know most of the outcomes in most of the states. And let's remind ourselves that it takes 270 electoral college votes to win the presidential election, that each state has a number of votes in that college, which is arrived at by the following formula. The number of senators that it has, in every case two, the number of members of Congress that it has, which varies between one in the case of Montana and 53 in the case of California. And that means that you require 270 votes to win, hence the name of the website, 270 to win. That's the number of votes you require. And there is not one presidential election. There are 51 going on here. There are 51, which with the awkward exception of Nebraska and Maine, for reasons which I won't go into today, are, are winner-take-all elections. So were, for example, let's just take an Let's just take an example. Were, rather awkward example in light of history, were Governor Romney to win Florida by, let us say, 10 votes? Florida's 29 votes are not distributed proportionately, or roughly proportionately, between Romney and Obama. They are distributed 29-0. So winner takes all, and that's enormously consequential. And it means that where we see states moving from blue to red or red to blue over time, or certainly over a four-year period, the shifts might not, be, might not be very large. They might be quite small. What the Electoral College does is to dichotomize a complex process in each state. But it complicates the process by, making it, by giving 51 elections rather than one. Where's the election going to be fought? It's going to be fought in these states that I've marked out. And Florida. Florida, North Carolina, Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, New Hampshire, quite possibly. Uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, Iowa, Colorado, and Nevada. Nowhere else matters, really. The results elsewhere, absent a currently unforeseeable event, the results elsewhere are already known. They can be discounted. Obama is not making any organizational effort in most of these states, not in Texas, Oklahoma, obviously not in the South, except for Florida, North Carolina, and Virginia. Some in Missouri, but not much. None in Kansas, Nebraska, South Dakota, North Dakota, Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, Utah, or Arizona, or Alaska. Governor Romney's going to win all of those. 
Even I could win them if I were a Republican candidate. It's not difficult. And he's also going to win these states, West Virginia and Kentucky, the very poor states which used to be part of the New Deal coalition and which are so no longer. He will also win Indiana, which Obama won in 2008. He's not going to win in 2012. Okay. So that's where we are. Now I'm going to return to the PowerPoint demonstration because it's a, what I've just suggested to, done is to suggest that the election is effectively going to take place, effectively going to take place in seven or eight states. So those are the four phases. And we've seen the New Deal electoral coalition's decomposition. We've seen the gradual detachment of the South from the Democratic Party. We've seen the Democratic Party concentrate much more heavily in cities and the Republican Party much more heavily in rural areas. The Democratic Party and Democratic Kansas have concentrated strength down the two coasts, West Coast and East Coast. The Republican Party is immensely strong in the rural Midwest. It is almost as strong now in Kansas as it is in the Deep South. It's remarkable. And in Missouri. So the Midwest and the South are powerfully Republican. And the most recent trend that we've seen is that culture often trumps economic interest. That's what's going on in West Virginia and Kentucky. Voters in West Virginia are going to vote for a candidate who does not align with their economic preferences. But they're going to vote for a candidate who does align, as they judge, and I'm, it's not for me to say they're wrong, who does align with their cultural preferences and their cultural values. And who does not, in their view, and Barack Obama does not, in their view, align with their cultural values. Now, that's true of West Virginia. It is true of the Midwest. It's true of Kentucky. It's true of most of the border states. And it is emphatically true of the South. It's also true to a large extent in Indiana and in much of Pennsylvania. I still think it's likely that Obama will win Pennsylvania, but Pennsylvania culturally, large parts of Pennsylvania, are what they always were, deeply conservative culturally. Deeply, somebody once rather facetiously described Pennsylvania as Pittsburgh and Philadelphia joined by Alabama. Um, and it's not true, and it never was true, but the point was, it's not a homogenous whole. And that's partly a story about the difference between cities and major cities and rural areas. So culture now matters in ways in which it traditionally, at least in terms of the New Deal coalition, did not. And it will, have, it will certainly have consequences in, um, in 2012. Now, can we predict the outcome of the election? What do we think? Well, I predicted the outcomes of some of the elections in some of the states with a degree of confidence. What I can't do is to predict what's going to happen in those other states. I have no idea. But lots of people think they can, and some really smart people, really very bright people, um, creative political scientists, have devised numerous mathematical models to predict the voting outcome. Uh, and this was what they did in 2008. 
and you'll see that they, there is some considerable variance around those models. I am very sceptical about the capacity of models to predict outcomes. But one measure which does seem to me really rather important is the following. This is the real growth rate in gross domestic product, the extent to which the economy is growing or declining in the second quarter, April to June, of the election year for presidents seeking re-election. So this gives you not quite a laboratory test, but some sort of test in answer to the question, what difference does the economy's immediate pre-election performance make to an incumbent's chances of re-election? Well, here's, the, here's, here's what the data show. You draw the inferences that you will. Richard Nixon, running for election in 72, wins almost every state. The real growth rate is, as indeed he engineered it to be, nearly 10%, nearly 10% in the second quarter. It resulted in, of course, a destructive inflationary firestorm in, from 1973 to 1980, but nevertheless, that is it. And Richard Nixon certainly understood there to be a relationship between that number and his election. That's one reason why you get that number. Harry Truman in 48, who only just won, nevertheless saw an economy growing very rapidly. Ronald Reagan in 84 wins a landslide, rapidly growing economy. Bill Clinton's numbers, exactly the same in 96. Lyndon Johnson did much, did, uh, had a much slower growth rate uh, in 64, but he was facing a tailor-made, a tailor-made outlier opponent. And he was a supreme calculator. George H.W. Bush in 92 is an interesting outlier because he loses but in fact, the economy was growing quite rapidly on the day of the election. But that number had not really become apparent politically. It had not become politically salient to the electorate. It wasn't apparent in the unemployment rate. So it suggests that we might want to take unemployment, in addition to growth rate, we might want to take unemployment into account. Eisenhower has a pretty much trend number. That's a near trend number, long-term trend growth rate number for the US economy at 3.2% and easily wins re-election. Gerald Ford has a trend rate of growth of the economy. That's a powerful performance in 76, but he just loses. And all this suggests that this, suggests that this number alone is not going to be sufficient. George W. Bush has a slightly subpar performance in 2004 and just wins election, re-election. Barack Obama, second quarter number is 1.5. And if we take the implication of these numbers, which is that unemployment ought also to be plugged into our simple equation, Barack Obama has a real problem. He has a huge problem because his unemployment number is nominally eight, but in reality something like double that. And in reality, double, I double it because that nominal number hides those who are deterred from seeking work and part-time workers. It also hides another striking fact about the American labor market over the last 30 years, which is that per capita incomes of the median worker have barely changed in real terms in the last 30 years. Household incomes have risen. Per capita incomes barely have. 
Here we have the clearest result. Poor Jimmy Carter, 8%, nearly 8% down in the second quarter. And of course, he loses eventually, eventually loses quite badly. But interestingly, he was competitive until September of 1980. So maybe there are other factors involved there. What about the presidential campaigns? Do we think they matter? What does the evidence show? Now, I'm going to summarize quite a lot of research rather rapidly. Candidates have noticed that most states are non-competitive. That is not surprising. They know that perfectly well. Both candidates know that Texas is not going to vote for Barack Obama this year. Both candidates know that California is absolutely certain to vote for Barack Obama this year, and the same respectively with Alabama and New York. There is no question about it, so there's no need to discuss it. We have 15 states at most which are competitive, and in my view, it's really down to seven in 2012. But in 2008, those 15 most competitive states were identified by, both by, by Obama, not by McCain, interestingly enough. Obama identified them and poured 90% of his total spending on TV ads into those 15 states and almost all of his field offices. That's to say the organizational capacity on the ground, the field offices which are making the connection between campaign headquarters in Chicago and individuals on the ground receiving their instructions to canvas opinion in the following houses or apartments on the following days with the following questions with the following intelligence on each voter. Those field offices are absolutely crucial. And Obama wins by effectively three to one. His organizational effort is three times more concentrated than, Obama's in than McCain's in 2008. And I think that's pretty remarkable. Just look at those, these data. They're astonishing. Let's, let's look at one state which Obama thought was going to be competitive, and McCain did not. So McCain knows that he's going to win Indiana, because Republican candidates usually do win Indiana. So his response is to say, the smart thing is not to waste any organizational effort in Indiana. I will have no organizational effort on the ground. Total number of field offices opened by McCain in 2008 in Indiana, zero. Total number operated by Obama, 14. You'd have thought McCain would have noticed. Wouldn't you? I mean, you know, Senator McCain's a very smart and savvy person. What's his response? His response is nil. And look at the advertising. McCain spends hardly anything. 3.2 million. Obama hits it at five times that level. So he's multiplying TV advertising by... And not any old organization. This is Obama's organization. I mean, he's, he, he is supremely good at it. What happens in Indiana? The state that McCain knows he's going to win, he loses. He loses. So in most cases, the candidates implicitly identify the two st the, the states in the same way, but not always. Indiana's one, North Carolina's the other. McCain thinks that North Carolina is absolutely locked up. That's what his campaign staff thought. His advisors told him they were. All his pollsters told him they were. And Obama took the view, he took personally the view, and his senior staff took the view that North Carolina was winnable. 
incidentally, let me immediately confess, I did not think Indiana or North Carolina likely to vote Democratic in 2008. McCain's response is to make zero organizational effort to put some money into advertising, but still be outspent two to one, and, and Obama establishes 11 field offices in the state. That's a lot of effort. It certainly is when you multiply it by the quality. The result is Obama wins, I'm not attributing this just to organization and spending incidentally, but he does win North Carolina. Quite remarkable. Quite astonishing. So I infer from that that organization multiplied by um, multiplied by advertising spending matters. But we need to control for those long-run partisan dispositions that I showed you earlier in the maps, because states have long-term loyalties. Majorities have long-term loyalties in certain states. So if we take partisan disposition into account, we can calculate the expected vote in 2008, and this, these data were processed by James Campbell, a very distinguished elections analyst at State University of New York. And we can actually see what's happening. So here is Obama's vote, and that's the number. That's the expected vote. That's the number that McCain believes, and that's the vote that Obama actually gets. So it suggests that advertising multiplied by organization is probably making a significant difference. Almost certainly making a significant difference. And in North Carolina, it's really puzzling because Obama's expected vote is 48.3%. You'd have thought that McCain would have seen that number and said, my goodness, we must make maximum effort in North Carolina, or we risk losing it. But if we've seen that he doesn't, that's a political miscalculation. And Obama just wins, 50.2% of the vote. Can we know that organization and more spending in North Carolina would have made the difference? No, of course we can't. But it is a reasonable expectation that it might. It's certainly counterintuitive to think that McCain, had he known the level of risk, would have chosen not to effectively to make no effort in the state. Now, elsewhere, elsewhere, the difference between his actual vote and the expected vote is usually not very great. And in some states, it's smaller. Pennsylvania, Ohio, that's probably cultural conservatism there, probably in parts, in, in parts of southwestern Pennsylvania. Um, but mostly the differences are quite small. And in some states, such as Virginia, where my Democratic friends were so overwhelmingly impressed by the organizational quality, there we see that Obama's huge organizational effort, just immense organizational effort and spending does in fact appear to make a significant difference to the outcome. Okay, well, I'm nearly out of time, so let me just wrap up by saying what I think the implications are. I have no idea who is going to win the presidency. Um, I note the running opinion polls which have Obama slightly in the lead. I note, too, that those running opinion polls tend over the long run to overstate Democratic candidates' actual performance. So I view them with some skepticism. I think the race is exceedingly close. But 
Whoever wins the presidency, I think the Republicans, the grand old party, will retain a majority in the House. I think they'll probably get a majority in the Senate. But whether the Republican Party gets a majority in the Senate or not doesn't matter, matters less than that. Neither party, and certainly not the Republican Party, neither party will win a Senate supermajority. Having a majority of one in the Senate, one or two in the Senate, is not enough. You need to have 60 reliable votes in the Senate to get most business done because most business in the Senate proceeds on the basis of supermajority rules, not majority rules. It's not a simple majoritarian institution. But the United States is not a majoritarian it's not a majoritarian political system. It just isn't. If it were, we would simply sum all of the results of the presidency nationwide and have one election. But we don't. We have 51. Quite apart from the other 6,089 going on at state and local level. So it's going to be a messy and unclear result, I think, in the aggregate. What are the implications for policy? I think, in terms of taxing and spending, fiscal risks are immensely high, and they're high not because they're difficult questions in themselves to solve. They're actually not. The long-term solution to America's fiscal problems is going to be, is going to rest somewhere in a negotiated bargained accommodation about a combination of measures to increase the rate of growth, to get growth going again, one, two, Measured tax, cut, measured tax increases through the removal of certain tax allowances, possibly some tax decreases for certain demographics, and fourthly, because of a serious and sustained attempt to get, to get entitlement spending under control, Medicare, Social Security, and all of those huge welfare programs run for American farmers and defense contractors who benefit from huge federal subsidies, which is to say from taxpayer subsidies, whilst assuring themselves that actually all they're doing is operating in the free market. Well, not quite. The inference I draw that the conf is the conflict potential for 2013 to 17 is very high. I do not think the next four years are going to be easy. Um, in other words, they might look rather like the last four. Four further considerations, and then I will close. And we perhaps have two or three, time for two or three questions before um, Hugh David begins his tour. First point is to say that the presidency is, and again, I remember Tony and Paul and I discussing this 30 years ago and more, after Godfrey Hodgson published his splendid book on the presidency. The presidency is beset by exaggerated expectations. And in part, that's a wonderful thing. It's the hope of democratic and renewal, democratic with a small d. It really is. Um, I was saying to uh, Douglas and others earlier that most of the, my friends in this place and who are connected with this place in New York and um, elsewhere in Los Angeles are a variant upon corporate Republicans. They mostly are. That's the sort of people they are. They're not Tea Party people. These are corporate establishment <coughs> businessmen and executives, um, equity fund managers, and uh, people who know and admire Mitt Romney because they come from those, those sorts of groups. And they, too, are invested 
in the system to the extent that they have hopes what his presidency might bring. Splendid. We, we need that hope. There's too little of it about. But, but, I'm afraid the bets are being taken on an institution which is rather ill-adapted to deliver. It's, not a matter, it's less a matter of individual, the faults and failings of individual presidents. This is an institution, the presidency, is incapable of realizing all of those hopes, in part because there's so much misunderstanding about how weak an office it is, at least in domestic policy, not in foreign and security policy, but certainly in domestic policy. So we need to remember that opposing for the median, the median Republican, let's suppose that Obama is re-elected. I'm not forecasting, it's just acting on that assumption for the sake of argument. He's re-elected by a sliver of 1%. The median Republican in the House of Representatives and the median Republican in the United States Senate has zero incentive for supporting President Obama on any of his core policies in 2013 and beyond. None. Absent extraordinary conditions and uh, international crisis of overwhelming magnitude, the median senator and the median representative on the median vote on the median issue will oppose the president and if I were a Republican congressman or Republican senator and I were facing President Obama, that is precisely what I would do because that is exactly what my median voter would want me to do. That link is very clear. And the same works on the other side of the partisan calculation. Exactly the same works. All those, all those Democrats clustering in the center of the party uh, in the House who are denounced Republicans for being obstructionists will play precisely the same cards in the event that Governor Rob Romney becomes president. This is not a very healthy condition, but it is the case. And the third consideration, which is typically forgotten in the poetry with which um, presidential campaigns are at least sometimes conducted, is that some problems just exceed the political or technical capacity of governments to deal with. And some problems are so complex and so challenging and, and require such pain to be imposed upon voters that governments dealing in the real world of bidding for votes but also seeking to solve those problems cannot solve them. We see this in Europe. It's not a peculiarly American phenomenon. It's perfectly apparent in Greece or Ireland. And so easy it is to stand outside and say, well, how can they be so irrational when it's quite clear that what needs to be done is X, Y, or Z. So even where the technical problems are soluble, the political system may make them hard. Democracy does not necessarily make government difficult, make government easy. It sometimes makes it harder. And the fourth is, and I predict that President Romney, if that's what he becomes, will be surprised by this. Because almost all presidents are. And even so sage and shrewd and profoundly intelligent, organizationally intelligent, a president as, for example, Dwight Eisenhower, was astonished by it. Records in his diary, his disbelief that it can be the case that there are so few things that I can do because I have so few resources of my own. But it is the case. Our hopes for this office are greater than the capacities of the office allow. And that's a problem for all American voters, and because America's concerns are, 
to a greater or lesser degree, our own, it's a problem for us too. So there we are. The tour starts in 10 minutes, and you have not got a prediction from me about who's going to win. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs>